Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today I'm talking to Shelby Stanger. Uh, if you don't know Shelby, she is the host of one of the other really big outdoor podcasts called Wild Ideas Worth Living. Uh, if you've ever looked up the same category of podcast that my show is, which is Wilderness in Apple Podcast, uh, you will have seen Wild Ideas Worth Living. It is uh, Shelby's show. She started it uh, 2016. And she uh, eventually it got picked up by REI. So it's like literally REI's podcast. And that's what she does. It's so cool. Uh, and she talks about wild ideas that people have uh, around adventure in the outdoors. And so we're going to sit down and talk about her experience, how she got to this point, how she started off on Vans Warp Tour, which is kind of like a punk rock and metal uh, tour that I used to go to a lot as a high schooler in college age. So we probably crossed paths and didn't even know it. Uh, but her show, uh, Wild Ideas Worth Living, has led her to some really cool uh, understandings and, and kind of this knowledge base that she has now turned into a book called Will to Wild that she's uh, just released. You can find it anywhere you find uh, books. Just Google it. There's links in the show notes. Find it on Amazon. I have a couple copies at home. I've gifted a few copies to friends. And what we're going to do is we're going to give one of her books away, Will to Wild. I've already gifted it because it's a really cool how-to guide on how to adventure. It's like a manual on how to adventure, like everything from the idea to steps to funding it, steps to figuring it out, building space in your life, all the way to how to deal with post-adventure depression and kind of filling that void once you complete an adventure, which we've often talked about on this show. So in order to submit uh, to win, I don't know. Let's 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 do something. Maybe email us at Mason at adventuresportspodcast.com or reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook on a messenger um, or in the DMs and uh, just say, I'd love to read Will to Wild. And if you're the first person to do that, you're going to get a copy of the book. So uh, hopefully folks have listened to this intro and uh, yeah, let's help get the idea out, get, uh, get the book out and if you haven't checked it out already, please check out Wild Ideas Worth Living. It's slightly different, probably better produced than this show, um, but, you know, totally Shelby style, and, and uh, she's really cool. So let's go ahead and dive in. All right, folks, welcome to Adventure Sports Podcast. Uh, you heard a little of Shelby's story in the intro. I'm super stoked because this is a you. fellow podcaster, Shelby Stanger. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here. I love talking to fellow podcasters and you're an adventure podcaster. So like I've been living in this little lonely world. You know, there's a few of us, but to get to actually connect via podcast is so cool. So thanks for having me, Mason. It is awesome. You know, it, it, talking about adventure all the time is funny because... You end up just talking and not actually doing it if you're not careful. Yep. You got to be very yep. intentional about getting outside of this windowless room <laughs> and actually do the adventures. So where are you coming from today? I, I always ask that first. So I come from San Diego. You can see there's a bunch of surfboards behind me. We just live, we're really lucky. Right now we live in a condo that's falling apart, but right in front of us is a cliff that leads down to an ocean and the waves are pretty consistent. They're not great. They're not super special, but um, it's generally pretty empty and there's always waves and the water's about 68 right now 65 oh, wow. we're going sometimes with a spring suit sometimes just with nothing so we can adventure we can literally take 15 minutes run down catch two waves and come back and it is just amazing wow and you take advantage of that that is awesome now how close is that to where you kind of grew up because i know that you are from the west coast um, <laughs> i'm like one one town over from where i grew up <laughs> okay. i did i did go away i went to college in atlanta georgia um in the south and i lived in new zealand i've lived in costa rica and for many years i lived in orange county california i lived in breckenridge colorado yep. did a stint as like a snowboard snowboarder did some adventure journalism there hosted the local tv show it was a pretty wild fun time um but yeah i i just love san diego it really is home it's been hard to leave but i have left and i always come back well as the saying goes coming home is not the same as never leaving that is <laughs> 
very, very true. <laughs> I'm sure you know a lot of people that never left. <laughs> well, it's also gotten very cool here. So like when I grew up here, it wasn't so hipster or cool. It's just this sleepy little beach town. Now it's become, you know, a pretty big destination. Now it's very hard to even buy a house here, but oh yeah, that's a whole other topic. Different podcast. You know, you grew up in a house that wasn't adventurous. Like your dad didn't even like beach sand, but you lived in a, in an amazing place. Why, why do you think that is? What was the draw to your parents? First of all, were they from there as well? And kind of, how did you discover it on your own? Cause this is a common theme with adventures. I've learned they have to figure it out themselves. I think a lot of people happen to be the youngest children too. I've interviewed so many adventurers and a lot of them are younger because you know, the, the older kids, you, you feel a little bit safer. So there's a little bit more of a leash to do crazy wild things. Yeah, my parents grew up on the East Coast. My dad was from Brooklyn. My mom was from Pittsburgh. They came here because my dad was a dentist for the Navy. So many families came to San Diego because of the Navy. And they didn't really like the beach. I don't know why. We lived very close to the beach, but they would take walks on the beach. They would kind of go there. My dad didn't even like sand. But I went to this school that was directly across the street from a surf break. And at the time, there weren't any women I knew who surfed, not even young girls. Wow. Sometimes a kid would go out with their dad, but that was it. And a lot of the boys at my elementary school surfed and it just looked so fun. And there happened to be a teacher of mine whose son became a professional surfer. And his name is Rob Machado for people who know surfing. Many people have heard of that name. And Mrs. Machado was our teacher. And his lifestyle just looked so cool and thrill of the ocean, just riding wave looked so fun. And we would go to Hawaii quite a few times a year because my grandmother lived there. She was a very free woman who wore gaudy jewelry and often had a whiskey sour in one hand, a cigarette in the other, would lie out in a bikini at the Outrigger Hotel in Waikiki with a guy that was like 20 years younger by her side. She probably wasn't the best mother, but she was a wonderful grandmother. And so I learned to surf in Hawaii on a big 12 foot long red board and it was so fun and I loved boogie boarding. And so I just begged my parents to take me to the beach. And lucky for me, my mom was a professor at San Diego State University, which had a deal with a camp called Mission Bay Aquatic Center. And this camp offered sailing, kayaking, surfing, did I say water skiing? And the water ski instructors were the same instructors at SeaWorld, which by the way, back then was cool yeah, yeah, to go yeah. to. There's now it's like a little too. controversial to <laughs> yeah. go to SeaWorld. But um, it was so fun. And so in the morning, you would take these specific things. I often took water skiing because surfing was mostly boys. And then one day I took surf lessons and you know I was always one of the only women. And then I had one day a female instructor and she was so cool. She taught Princeton Review SAT classes. She spoke fluent French and Spanish. Um, all the guys liked her. She didn't care about them. She just wanted to surf and have fun. And she became like my babysitter and one of my best friends. But I fell in love with outdoor sports pretty much through this camp. And then one night at that camp, we had an overnight where we slept at an old Boy Scouts camp in Coronado. And I just remember we slept in sleeping bags, no tent on the sand. We got to eat pizza from a box. I'm sure it was like half pizza, half sand. We roasted marshmallows and made s'mores. And we all just slept together in a circle. And I remember this kid who was sleeping next to me, who was of course a cute boy, looked at me and said, hey, you know you smile when you sleep? I watched you. That's so weird and so cool. And I think I just was so happy. Like it felt so free. And I kind of grew up in a chaotic household. I think a lot of people did um, as kids. And so I found quiet, but also thrill and joy outdoors. Was, how was that accepted by your family? Were they just like cool with that? You know, given your dad didn't like the ocean or was it always a little yeah. bit of friction? Well, I, you know, I didn't really start getting into outsports until the year he passed away. So the mm. day he died, he agreed to take my, he agreed to take me boogie boarding at the beach every Saturday. He could see how much I loved it. But mostly we just went to the soccer field every Saturday. I played competitive soccer all through college. And even at five years old, I was playing competitive, pretty competitively. Um, and so, yeah, right after he died, my sister bought me he didn't, it's not like he wasn't for it. He, he was supportive, of course, but it just was so far from what he could see. Like girls didn't really surf where he grew up. Surfing wasn't a thing. You know, he went to school, got an education through the Navy, became a dentist. Surfing was just not something that like well-respected 
people in his echelon did but he thought it was great and i think he was really supportive of the fact that i loved boogie boarding and i think he would have been a fan but you know he died in april my birthday was june my sister got me a surfboard and it was too small for me it had been broken a half in half which i didn't realize until like a couple years ago they sold her a broken and re-glued together surfboard they did a good ding repair job and I just fell in love with surfing. I was no good at it. I'm still not a very good surfboard, surfer, especially for how long I've been surfing. But I think in the ocean, I found a lot of answers and a lot of peace that I couldn't ever find on land. I think there's just this calmness about the water and you're forced to be quiet, but it's also really fun. So it kind of tricks you into meditating in a way. Hmm. That's I've never heard anyone put it that way, but that's like that. That's the phrase I've been looking for because it's like it's a form of meditation, climbing or biking or any of these adventure sports that we talk about. It tricks you into meditation because sitting down and meditating is really hard to do. But if you can get tricked into it or like tricked in, it's tricked into exercise and meditation. I'm going to remember that. I like that. Good. I like that too. I'll start using it. (laughs) For your next book. For your next book. Great. Tricking you into meditation. It 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 helps. Um, as a parent, there's a ton of freaking things you got to do to trick kids into everything um changing clothes eating vegetables whatever so, so surfing surfing's huge the beach is awesome you're you're really you're hawaii your grandma your really cool sounding grandma um why school in atlanta how do you end up in atlanta at emory because that's yeah that's the that's the dirty south right there that's where i'm from like what what got you there that was a hard decision but one stanford rejected me ultimately okay. <laughs> And that was like my other school. Two, I, I, I applied to every school I applied to was Division One soccer school. And when I went on recruiting trips, I went to Boulder. I went to some really great schools. And I just remember the athletes told me their schedule. And it was like, wake up, train, go to class, have study hall, train. It was just boring. Emory had a wonderful journalism program. And the other goalkeeper, believe it or not, I was a goalkeeper. I guess I'm kind of weird. Goalkeepers are a bit of outliers. You're either the hero or the villain. The other goalkeeper hosted the TV show, volunteered, got straight A's, partied, was in a sorority, and she already had like a job working for the TV news station as well as like the local college station. She was so cool. She's now um, the announcer for the women's soccer league on Apple TV. Oh, wow. So cool. But I wanted to go to a school where kids were pretty well-rounded and where soccer wasn't just my life. Emory had a fantastic journalism school and Atlanta was where CNN was. And I really thought I was going to be a TV journalist Mm. and I still love TV journalism. Um, So I actually interned at CNN. I one year got to go to South Africa and work for a newspaper. And most of all, I knew if I'd gone to USC or UCLA or Santa Barbara or any school in California, I would have just been another surfer girl from California who rode a skateboard to class. And at Emory, I could ride a skateboard to class and I was like the only person and people shouted funny things at me. They're like, hey, dudes, skateboarding died in the 80s. And oh, I just had the funniest remarks, but my teachers loved it. They thought it was great. I would go to the parking deck late at night in the winter and it was one of those spiral parking decks. So you could take the elevator up and then skateboard all the way down these like spiral smooth surfaces. And it felt like snowboarding. It was so much fun. Did it over and over again until the cop was like, Hey, what are you guys doing? And we were like, you're really going to unrest like two girls in jean skirts (laughs) skateboarding. But, um, they were pretty cool to us. We were very lucky. And, um, yeah. So Emory was a good school. I, I chose it because of journalism and because the women's soccer team was so diverse, so interesting. And I remember going on a recruiting trip there and no one was like me. And I loved it. And they were really kind. People were so different. The school had so much diversity before diversity was ever a thing. And I just enjoyed it. It felt kind of like a cultural experience. It, it felt more foreign to me than going to Costa Rica which I know sounds yeah. wild, but Costa Rica is another beach culture. So I felt very comfortable there. I 100% agree. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. I, I love Atlanta. It's not too far away. Um, it's kind of that that big city near near us. And uh, so much, you know, so much you don't know. It, it is, it, it can be culture shock if you're coming from like the West Coast, Southern California, for sure. Uh, but you learn so much. And like you said, you get to stand out a little bit. But you, you got into journalism. You, you found writing before this, which 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 got you interested in em, Emory in the first place. Um, 
you can you can talk about how you discovered that, but I, I really want to hear about from there another kind of out of nowhere opportunity to join Warp Tour, and that really caught my attention when uh, when I learned about your story because I was a huge fan of Warp Tour. I went to Warp Tour every year. And, you did? Oh yeah, I love it. Even I still in two thousand two, not that not that early, but I was all through high school Warp Tour, college Warp Tour uh, until it kind of you know fizzled out but yeah I was a huge fan got the CDs every year so I always wanted to cover surfing skateboarding action sports snowboarding and I had this amazing professor freshman year in college he was a writer for Esquire magazine he was pretty controversial he also wrote for Playboy which by the way I know contra- like contrary to what you might think had really incredible journalism what, uh, that's I've- what my grandpa always said <laughs> <laughs> That's what like every guy says. Playboy has really good journalism. Anyways, he was this reporter and first day of class, he's like, okay, you get to choose from this list of assignments. And it was like, interview a matchmaker, interview this guy who was definitely in the mafia, or you could spend the night at a homeless shelter and write about it. And I was like, wow. So I chose to spend the night at a homeless shelter and write about it, which is pretty intense experience for an 18 year old fresh out of San Diego wow. who's never done anything like this. And the other kid who I did that with is now like a huge political reporter for the New York Times. So my journalism experience was so hands-on and so incredible. And sadly, the journalism program at Emory is no longer because kids aren't making the kind of money that parents who are paying for their kids to go to a school like Emory can justify, which is a whole other topic. That same professor said, if you guys can do one thing the summer after you graduate, and this is advice I give to anybody who's graduating college, Go intern at your local newspaper. There's always a chain of weekly newspapers in every single, especially beach community, that's usually free. And it was a big thing in 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. So I did. And I ended up getting to convince, convincing them to let me write about surfing and all the wild sports that people did. And I just found a column that I started. It was called Breaking News. And then I changed the name to Going Wild, which I didn't, I mean, this was before the movie Wild even came out or the book Wild came out. And I covered people biking across the country. There's actually a kid from Athletic Brewing who reached out to me and was like, his mom was one of the twins that I interviewed who biked across the country when I wrote about her in 1999. Um, he is from, um, I'll get his name after, but his mom is Angela. He's like, has a foreign last name, some sort of European last name. Oh, and he's, yeah. he's a athletic brewing ambassador. Please so I, I interviewed, I interviewed people who were doing wild ideas essentially well before this thing. I pitched five, four, three, two, one. I pitched all these TV shows at the time. They wanted girls that had and looked like playboy bunnies. I did not. And so I pitched the LA Times, I pitched the New York Times, I pitched the Associated Press, I asked CNN if I could be their adventure reporter, and everybody was like, no. But someone at the LA Times said, listen, we don't have such a thing as an adventure sports reporter. And this is when the X Games was starting. Mm -hmm. But he did tell me that I should talk to a PR agency that ran the account for Vans, which had this thing called the Vans Warp Tour and the Vans Triple Crown Series. So I met with the PR team, I ended up meeting the PR guy at Vans. I stayed in touch. I didn't think anything of it. Graduated from college. I was applying to jobs at MTV, at Eco Challenge, at all these crazy places at the Associated Press. I got completely rejected from the Associated Press. So I called my friends at Vans and I was like, hey, um, do you guys have any opportunities? He's like, sorry, Shelby. I would have hired you right out of college or in college while you were in college last year, but I hired someone. Stay in touch. He called me two days later and said, hey, Shelby, we have something for you. This guy who is the journalist for the Vans Warp Tour isn't going to work out. And I was like, well, well, when are you hiring for it? He's like, I don't know. The VP of marketing is leaving today to go to Canada on a trip. And I was like, when is he leaving? And he's like, 4 p.m. It was 12 o'clock. And I was like, I can be there in two hours. I literally like, showered, drove to LA, like put on a collared shirt, which is not how people at Vans dress, and like a very preppy skirt, drove there met with the VP of marketing and told him that I should be the journalist for the Vans Warp Tour. And at the time, they'd never had a female journalist for the Vans Warp Tour. The Warp Tour had a mostly male crew and they were worried I was, you know, who knows what they were worried about. Probably that I was going to make out with someone <laughs> on the crew or one of the guys or get taken advantage of or whatever. It, it was just, rough, it's, rough it's kind of a rough, rough yeah. environment. 
And I had just taken some time to backpack through Fiji, Australia, and New Zealand. I graduated college a little early, so I was able to kind of get some experience on my own. I proved to them that I could hang. I lied to them. I said that my favorite band was Blink-182. And then I was, I laughed. I didn't like totally lie. They knew I was joking. And I love Blink-182. I actually see the guy from Blink-182 at the local coffee shop all the time. That's hilarious. But now they're back on tour. Yeah, so long story short, I got the job and it was the best summer of my life. Every day I had to wake up and I had to write a story about whatever was happening on the tour. And then I would pick something to focus on, whether it was a nonprofit. Believe it or not, a lot of nonprofits go to these punk rock concerts. The Warp Tour, for those who don't know, is a traveling punk rock circus. It goes to 60 cities in 60 days with 108 bands or more a day that play. And they're held in stadiums and dirt parking lots and fairgrounds. And it's just a bunch of kids. When I did the Warp Tours 2002, there was only dial-up internet connection, which wow. meant I had to find a phone line, which, mean, which meant I had to hitchhike usually to find a phone line after every concert, which was terrifying. But I don't know. I did it. Somehow I survived. <laughs> no one murdered me. I often got rides to Kinko's. And uh, yeah, it was the best summer of my life. It taught me how to be resourceful. It taught me that what people look like is often not who they are. And I also had to be really good at finding the stories. And what I mean by that is I was very intimidated by the guys with scary tattoos, mohawks, and piercings. But they were often some of the nicest people. <laughs> Still holds true too. And I mean, all these different cultures you're kind of throwing yourself into, I'm sure you were learning a lot about human character versus appearance. Yeah. And I mean, it was just, I had to learn to be resourceful. People on the Vans warp Tour worked really hard. And I was really lucky. I was working for Vans at the time. Mm -hmm. And the founder's son, Steve Van Dorn, was on the tour bus. So was his daughter, Christy. They looked out for me. And Steve Van Dorn is a leader like nobody else I've ever met. He's kind of like Santa Claus in that he loves to give presents to everybody. We would stop in the middle of Ohio. A kid would recognize him, do an ollie. He'd get the kid's address. The next day, a fresh pair of vans would be sent to his house. And he would sit out in the sun all day, and they would sell vans t-shirts and vans shoes to pay for the vans warp tour. Which is a really interesting concept. He's just a good guy. His daughter was incredible. And I ended up working at Vans in-house for some time after. Wow. That's so cool to hear that backstory. Oh, my gosh. That's, what a great lineup, too. I'm looking at 2002. It's like <laughs> so many good bands. Well, you know, good bands. And I know you, you, you hear the music and you love it. And it never gets Good bands. Yeah, very good bands. <laughs> if you like um, punk rock, Bad Religion, No Effects. Good Anti Charlotte. Flag, motion, I was a big fan of Every Anti Time flag. I Die. Oh my gosh, so many in here. That's so awesome. If um, I hear that kind of music, I get like, I get like a little PTSD now, but <laughs> it's okay. Funny. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. That's awesome. So, um, you know, you eventually got back into like writing about adventure, um, and I kind of want to. I don't. I don't want to take the full time to just like to hear your backstory, but I. I do want to hear. You know, writing. It, it, you, you learn a certain amount of things when you write, but then audio is a totally different experience. When did audio come into your world, and how difficult or easy was that transition for you, and how did they complement each other? I loved audio. I did a little bit of radio when I was in Breckenridge, Colorado. I loved TV, but I hated brushing my hair. And so when I heard my first podcast, I was like, wow, this is such a cool medium. And the first show I'd ever listened to was really Tim Ferriss's show. And my husband at the time like loved listening to Tim Ferriss, but I wished he was a woman and interviewed more women and interviewed more adventurers. Um, I also taught surfing to this guy who worked at NPR and he was like, you know, Shelby, you should think about doing a radio show for us about outdoor sports and action sports. And he told me about Dirtbag Diaries and I was like, oh, that would be so cool. At the time, just listening to Dirtbag Diaries was so hard. Like you had to use, like you couldn't just 
download a podcast app. It was very challenging. You had to go through your computer. Anyways, the NPR job never worked out, but it planted a seed in my head and I kept it in the back of my mind. And then I'd been writing for Outside Magazine and ESPN and a bunch of different magazines. They kind of cut stories down. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to start my own podcast. And I was scared. I am not very tech savvy. I had no idea how to edit. I didn't even know how to use this H6 Zoom recorder. I had to go pay some guy at like Best Buy to train me how to just turn the thing on. I had to do the same and, thing. Oh, okay, good. I feel a little bit better about myself. And I was, I ended up having a friend who's like, Shelby, if you want to do this and do it right, take a business course. And I'd been toying with going back to business school, but at the time it just seemed like such a giant investment. And instead I took a business accelerator course that was 12 weeks. The first day you wrote your business plan, the last day you launched your business, which in the podcast world meant I needed three shows and a trailer, which was a lot to do. So I found someone who could help me do the production and the editing. And then I immediately had to find sponsors because I had to fund paying this guy to do it. Yeah. That was the best experience. Was but that I have this only, show that you launched? That was, that no, was Wild Ideas show, Worth Living. Show. Yeah, that was Wild Ideas Worth Living. Wow. So I did that in 2016, and I loved every bit about it. There's nothing I'd ever pursued where I enjoyed all of the process so much, but I don't know. When I finally found podcasting, I've tried everything. I've tried journalism. I've tried sales. I've tried marketing. I've had hundreds of jobs in so many different industries. And when I found podcasting, I just felt so alive. And I found myself staying up late, getting up in the morning and just working ferociously on it. And I've always loved the interview part of journalism the most. Just love talking to people. I love hearing their stories. I love seeing why people do the things they do and how they go through life. And I've always been most interested in people who take the path less traveled. For me, those are the people, the outliers, the weirdos, the people who are listening to this podcast or my podcast. I've always been most interested in them. You know, the people who are nonconformists. I think it's really interesting how they make decisions. So that's sort of what I wanted to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I guess that little column I had when I was 19 years old always stuck with me. And I just never knew how to make money from it and how to grow it. But Wild Ideas Worth Living became that answer. That's so cool. You know, learning about kind of the backstory of Wild Ideas Worth Living, I, I didn't realize just how much persistence it took to like get REI on board and just all these, like one thing I've learned about you and your story is you're, uh, you, you are very good at, at, at hearing no and like moving on and just saying, okay, that's fine. Like, let's keep going. Um, what taught you that as well as, being spontaneous too. I, I feel like a lot of people in this world are just super, super type A and there's not a lot of room for flexibility. I feel like you have a good balance between the two. Like you're spontaneous, but also you see, you see an opportunity and just seize it. How did you get good at hearing no so much? Well, I think, I think the two go hand in hand. One, my mom taught me to be really flexible and to sort of roll with punches. There were a lot of things that happened suddenly in our life. Our dad died suddenly, like her mom died suddenly, her dad had died suddenly. And like things happened that were just so unbelievably hard to believe that they would happen, that you had to move on. And she calls it falling up. So I learned resiliency from my mom. She also always told me that like never to take rejection personally. And I find pitching like dating. So one thing that really helped me was I did journalism, but I also did PR. Mm -hmm. So as a journalist, you have to pitch stories and have them be accepted or you make no money. And when I quit my job at Vans in 2009, I like pitched and actually was successful at pitching or I starved. Like I didn't have a trust fund. So I had to sell stories. That's how I was making my money. As a PR person, people pitched me all the time. And I was just like, no. And it wasn't personal. It was just like sometimes it wasn't the right fit. It wasn't the right day. And I just learned that like it's a two-way street. I get emails all day long from people and I don't respond to all of them anymore because sometimes it's not a fit. And sometimes that email will come back around and they'll be like, Shelby, and they'll say something different that just catches my eye or that fits with something I'm working on right now and I can fit them in. I never take it personally. Um, so I think I just got good at it because I pitched so much 
and I got pitched as a journalist so much. So I saw what pitches worked for me, and I also learned how to pitch journalists. Here's the key. You just have to be authentic, and it has to be a fit for both parties, and you can't take it personally. Pitching is a lot like dating. You know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it's just timing, and sometimes a no is just not now, meaning you know, it doesn't work out right now, but that doesn't mean in a couple months or a year or something comes around. I actually had pitched REI to work for them many years ago before I ever had the podcast. But the way the job worked at the time was I was going to have to move to Seattle. And then I was going to have to move to a different part of Seattle because their offices were moving. And I was like, ah, I like San Diego. I'm not, I'm not going. But I kind of kept in touch with that guy that I had applied and interviewed with. And you know, I, I didn't forget him and I followed up with a thank you. I think that's the other thing is you have to be gracious. If people give you their time, say thank you and don't take it personally. You have no idea what someone is going through on a given day. I mean, there'd been times where I was just having a terrible day or someone in my family died and people were pitching me and I was not about to respond to pitches that day. Everybody's human. Mm -hmm. um, and so I always, when I pitch, I try to make it work for the other person. I know that they have a job and they're answering to a budget and a boss. And I just always keep that in the back of my own mind. I often have to tell people too, it's like that your story is awesome or this pitch is awesome, but that, that spot is filled for us right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a sports team. Oh, that you're a great athlete. I'd love to bring you on, but like we have a full roster if someone totally. does move, especially for your role, we'll keep you in mind. But that could be years. You know, that could never happen. You know, who knows? But, yeah, don't take it personal. That's re that's really interesting. I just, you know, all these steps of your journey have, well, have led to your book that we're going to talk about. But um, I do want to hear real quickly because, you know, I know it was writing, a lot of writing, and you have always continued to, then a lot of audio, and then a lot of writing again with the book. What do you learn differently about similar stories when you're going to publish it with with uh, audio versus versus in writing, is there different things you tend to pick up on, or does it tend to be the same story, just two different formats of consuming it? No, wait. So one more thing is the other thing I have to do is I'm always ready because sometimes that opportunity comes along, and when it does, I always tell people over deliver and be super cool to work with. Like you got to be cool to work with. You can't be a pain in the ass. You can't be demanding, you know, just be cool to work with, have fun and over deliver. That's like the biggest thing. I like that. Okay. To answer your question, writing and audio, totally different. And it was hard. So I had been a podcaster for the last six years and I went to write a book and I was like, oh my God, this is so much harder. Writing feels just more finite than podcasting. People are much what do you, cooler. What do, you mean? what do you mean? Like, well, like on the page, something that you're looking at and absorbing almost feels more finite than something that you're listening to. You can't see it. You're just hearing it. When you read, you kind of listen and you look at it. So it's coming in through two different senses, I feel like. interesting. And the way people perceived telling me their story for a book was totally different than a podcast. Interviewing Anybody for a podcast, they're always really cool to do the interview. When I talk to people about the book, they were much more reluctant to share their story. It was very wild. I think they wanted to like fact check it and they wanted to go over it a million times. And I think the hard thing about a book versus a podcast is your answers are cut in writing versus a podcast where... I can tell you a full sent sentence and I can stumble and I can say, um, and you can hear my pauses and it's just a little bit more authentic. Mm -hmm. Writing is a little bit more stylized and you have to just convey the message that you're trying to tell. So you don't tell the full story. So you're just telling bite-sized parts of the story to convey a message, totally different things. And it was really hard for me to write this book. Interesting. So you and I both have interviewed people who are, adventures and they you know it's a huge adventure something that might take years something very 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 difficult and then they go to turn it into a book i don't know how many times you've heard this but it's like oh the book was harder than the adventure i've heard that a thousand times so i was curious from your point of view was the book about adventures as hard as the podcast about adventures and it sounds like it was 
It was way harder. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Writing a book was challenging. Also, I had some obstacles that I didn't expect. You know, any good adventure, as you all know who are listening to this podcast, involves some obstacles. It's not an adventure until something goes wrong. And uh, yes. from the start, I had some obstacles, mostly in the sense that I'd never worked with a big time publisher. And, you know, I, I sold my book to Simon & Schuster, the person I sold it to at the company who was going to edit my book. We kind of agreed on our process and how we were going to work. The next week she was fired. Uh. So I got a new person. I was like, ah, oh, no big deal. It'll be fine. But the new person was a business editor and she kind of wanted me to write a business book. And she asked me to organize the adventures in terms of length and type. And I was like, a wild idea or an adventure is wild if it's wild to you. It's an adventure if it's adventurous to you. One person's trek up Mount Everest is another person's climb up Mount Baldy or even their local hill. I'm never going to climb Mount Everest. Like that is nothing I want to do. And just because I'm never going to climb Mount Everest doesn't mean that a trek up Mount Baldy isn't going to be my own Everest. Mm -hmm. So I had to sort of like do half of what my publisher wanted, half of what I wanted. And then that woman quit. As soon as I turned it in. So I had another editor who wanted me to write it a little bit differently. I had a couple of obstacles and I'd never written a book. The last thing is, is my own ego and the pressure I had since wanting to write a book since age 11 was looming in the backdrop of my mind. And if anybody has had a big lifelong goal, there's all this external pressure that sometimes you put on yourself. And I can tell you this, that it was completely unserving of my own brain to do that to me. And I had to work really hard on realizing that my ego is not my amigo. And I had to do a lot of personal growth to just let my ego go and tell the story I wanted to tell. And there's things I reveal in my book that were embarrassing and really vulnerable and really scary to share. And that was hard. And I was really worried that by telling these stories, people were going to just ask me about them for the rest of eternity. And I just had to let that go. I mean, no, what I learned is most people are really more concerned with themselves than you. <laughs> That's the truth. And the second thing is, is like, if you're authentic, then your story might just resonate and help someone. So I really tried to keep service at the forefront of my mind when writing this book. And I tried to think of someone I wanted to read this book and who I wanted to help. And when I did that, writing was effortless. When I didn't, and I was concerned with how I would look or what people thought of me, writing was really tortuous. Interesting. Did, did you learn anything about the, the idea of a will to wild, like living a, a wild life? Did you learn anything new from adventurers than you did in an audio format? Because I feel like writing it down, you're almost contemplating it a little more too, because you're going over every word. Were there things that kind of were drawn out through that process that you wouldn't get in audio? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I learned a little bit about starting, about unstucking ourselves, and about finishing. And I think the common thread is just like love, right? You have to be kind to yourself. You have to live with intention. And if you're kind to other people and mostly to yourself, the adventure will flow a little bit more seamlessly. But I think a lot of adventures, you know, sometimes do the adventure for reasons that aren't necessarily just because they want to. Sometimes it is for their ego. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that they're bad people because they're doing something for their ego. But I do think that I've learned that like when the ego gets in the way, it makes everything much harder. I, I learned that doing audio too, but I think it just became more apparent when writing my book. And one thing that I started hearing over and over again on my podcast from different adventures is that when they go out and set out on a grand adventure, sometimes finishing and after their adventure, they experience some sort of depression or fatigue. And that hadn't been talked about in the articles I've been reading about adventure. So I wanted to write about that in the book. So I don't necessarily think that like there's things that I didn't hear on audio that I learned from writing, but writing helped me organize thoughts in just a little bit more of a concrete way than I could on audio. So at the end of each chapter, I have these like pro tips 
and advice for people so that they could just like turn the page. And if they're feeling stuck, they can go to the page about unstucking themselves and read that. Or when everything goes haywire, which happens on every adventure, they could just go to the page that talks about what to do when everything goes haywire and read that page. Or go to the part about finish lines and realize that they're not crazy for feeling weird after a big adventure or feeling weird that they tried to pee in their grass after a camping trip because they forgot they weren't camping anymore. Like that happens. It's okay. You just have to give yourself grace at the end of the finish line. That's really interesting. You dive into those things that I, I would never think to write about, but yeah, like, um, something we talk about a lot on the show is, is the beginning and the end is often very anti-climatic. You know, you could finish this huge adventure and you're the only one there maybe because you're the only one that can get there totally <laughs> or you're in the middle of like you finish something at you know the a bike ride across america the santa monica pier no one cares you know you're, you 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 finish and it's like oh there's people everywhere no one knows what i just did and it's very strange and then there is that post adventure depression we've done a couple episodes about that and, and good for you it's uh it's i i think it's a good sign it means the adventure was impactful and it's something that you got a lot out of and your your soul wants to do it again you you, you feel this loss because it was it was that great um, that's really interesting. So, so tell us a little bit about how the book is organized. You mentioned it a little bit, but because uh, it's a mixture of your story as well as these interviews, just like with the podcast of all these adventures you've done. Um, how is it organized, and what what do people get out of it? It's organized into steps of how to start, and then what happens when you finished. And it starts with you know sometimes before we start, we're often stuck. And the opposite of stuck is motion, which adventure is the perfect antidote, I think, to when you're stuck. People are trying all sorts of things right now to change <laughs> their life and they're taking substances and whatever. That's fine if that's your thing. But I think something that adventure does that just taking a substance or talking to a person does not is it builds courage. And then you take that courage to the rest of your everyday life. So I organized it by how to start what happens after you start, how to find your sign. And then it kind of goes through what happens when you're going and everything goes wrong. Because it will. How to find, it will. yeah, it will. You know, trail angels, which are, are this incredible concept that I didn't learn about until I started interviewing PCT hikers mm. and Appalachian trail hikers. And I have this wonderful couple, Barney and Sandy Mann, Scout and Frodo, who are professional trail angels featured in the book. And I think that's one of my favorite chapters because these are people who were impacted by trail angels when they hiked the PCT, but they became full-time trail angels. And I actually spent some time with them after I wrote the book. At the beginning of the PCT season in April, I went to their house and this couple hosts trail hikers full time for like all of April at their house. They publish their phone number. They invite them in. They let backpackers like Uber to their house. They put them up. They make them two meals a day. They have like coffee, tea. They do wow. campfire stories every single night. And then they actually drive them to the ATT store to get phone cards and they drive them to the trail. That is awesome. But the thing is, is they're like, it's, there's no better feeling than being with someone on the cusp of a life-changing adventure. <laughs> and when you're around someone who's about to start something like that, usually they've been through their own journey to get to the actual trailhead. And then they're about to start it and you know they're going to come out the other side completely changed because adventure does that to you. So to be a part of that journey at the beginning, I think is really profound. And yeah, I mean, I used to teach surfing to women at an all-woman surf school, and I did it in San Diego, and then we would go to Costa Rica. And women often would come there, you know, some some of them were having struggles with their relationship or their job. They would come a little pale and sometimes a little bit softer. And by the end of the week, they were tan, they were courageous, they were skinny dipping, they were rowdy, they were standing up on surfboards, they were really strong physically, mentally. And shortly after, I'd often get a call from one of them and they'd tell me that they quit their job. They divorced their partner that they needed to divorce finally or that they were moving across the country to a place with a better beach and that they were prioritizing joy in their life. And 
this would all be from like a week of surf camp, which is pretty wild. And I think that's what adventure does that to you. So the book, to answer your question again, is just it's organized in sort of how you go from stuck to going through all the things an adventure will throw at you to then finish lining, finish lines and how to give yourself grace at the end and carry that sense of adventure with you to your everyday life. But there's some surprise stories in there. So I don't want to give it all away because no, 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 no. I want people to buy the book. Yeah, well, I think- you, you know, those are the steps, <laughs> but it's like you're not telling us how to do it. I, one, one thing I do want you to touch on, if you have a second, is what, what did you mean by the sign, your sign? Is there usually a sign associated with, with going out on an adventure? That's, I think I know what you're, sa- you're talking about, but that's, I didn't expect you to say that. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, yeah, I mean, I think when you're lost, you have to do what all hikers do, which is look for the trail sign. And signs are extremely personal, but I've heard so many adventurers tell me that when they're stuck and they need to make a change, they have a sign that comes to them. It's usually a sign that comes with a lot of pain because they have to make a change or it's a sign that just like keeps reoccurring. The perfect example I have in my book is a woman named Steph Jagger who skied the most vertical feet in one year. And she wanted to like quit her great PR job, but she had just bought a house and she wanted to just ski. She's like, what if I could just ski on the weekdays instead of the weekends? What if I could just ski every day? You know, she had this kind of grinding job, this life she created her for herself that she thought was perfect because she followed the plan, right? The plan, get a job, get a house, get married. She just, she was like, really, this is it? And when she was skiing in Whistler with her friends and she told them of this idea to just ski on weekdays and not just weekends, they kind of laughed at her. And as she was getting off the chairlift, she saw the sign and the sign said, lift your restraining device. And it referred to the metal bar that keeps you from falling off the, the chairlift onto your death in the mountain to get off and ski down the hill. And that sign just embedded in her head and it followed her to work in the next few weeks. And it just didn't go away so much that she like figured out a way to quit her job, got side hustles, raised money, got some sponsors and ended up skiing around the world for an entire year, broke a record, met her husband along the way. And now she's a life coach with two books that are really yeah. great. Her name is Steph Jagger. And I highly recommend her yeah. as a guest. Mutual friend yeah. of ours, uh, oh, both perfect. guests on okay. the show. Yeah, uh, awesome. Steph is amazing. And that story skiing, what like you said, four, it's like 4 million feet in a year. And it's just so crazy because I met Steph, right? Well, I started hearing about her on the trip because her husband was my good friend, Chris Ruckers, and I had worked at his nonprofit, Outdoor Outreach, which takes at-risk yeah. kids surfing and snowboarding. And I kind of had a crush on Chris because he was this good-looking guy, and he was like Mother Teresa for the outdoors. He wasn't really my type, but he was a really like cool guy. And I had this like little baby crush that I ended up just working for him and doing whatever he wanted to like help Outdoor Outreach out because it's such a good organization. And we became good friends and he told me about Steph and she was my age and she was super cool. And I was like, I cannot wait to meet this girl. And I was like one of her first friends when she came to San Diego and she told me about this book idea and she's like, I'm going to just self-publish it. And I was like, you're dumb. You should publish this thing. It's a great story. She did. She crushed it. Um, Ended up, you know, now she's on her second book and she's a wonderful writer. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that my book isn't very literary. The writing in it is like I talk. And I wanted it to be easy to read. I wanted you to be able to just like pick it up like a guidebook, read the nuggets. And I really wanted there to be some funny stories in there. Mm -hmm. So there are a few inappropriate funny stories in there. And, you know, my worst review on Amazon is a four star review. And it says, you know, I really like this book. And the girl who writes it is not saying that she's a guru. She's more like a friend that you want to have a beer with at a bar. And I was like, okay, that's awesome. <laughs> that's so I feel review. like, <laughs> I feel like I did my job with the book. You know, I don't, uh, I'm not a guru. I don't want to be preachy. There's so many books telling you what to do and how to live your life. This book is just saying, Hey, if you're already in an adventure, like you are, if you're listening to this podcast, here's a hall pass to keep doing what you're doing. 
And if you've ever had questions about why you do what you do, well, maybe some of this book will give your answers to those questions and just encouragement to keep on doing it. And you can also give this book to a friend who doesn't understand your lifestyle so that they understand it better. But it's also a call to action to get more into nature because I believe that nature has the best answers to all sorts of our problems. That's the quickest way to get unstuck today is go for a walk, get in nature. Don't neglect, we talk about this all the time, don't neglect the smallest experience with nature. I had Bear Grylls on the show a couple weeks ago and he said, he said, sit under a tree. That's what I, that's what he does when he's stuck. And it's like in the smallest, you got an hour between flights, find a tree. That that's that'll do something for you. Don't neglect that. And if that's you know some of the biggest adventures of the world saying that, it's true for us. One thing I want to ask, like, because uh, I think I think we're wrapping up here um, for you, because I know as a as a as a host, we're not you know doing the seven summits or biking around the world or sailing around the world, and I don't know if we even want to. For you, what is the perfect adventure for you personally? And then what's the perfect podcast adventure interview or, or, or interview in general for, uh, for an adventure? So what's your favorite interview for, for, for an adventure perspective? Um, and what's your personal, your favorite uh, adventure? My, I'm a surfer. So my favorite adventure is going to a remote wave with warm water and surfing it and feeling like I'm the only person on the island. Like I've discovered Gilligan's Island and I'm surfing this amazing wave. Like a full day, full day of that or a morning or multiple like a days? boat trip <laughs> so that I can like get okay. in and out of the boat. And then I have really good food in between and a shower. <laughs> I like showers like, like my, shower. my, yeah. my, my idea or at least water that I can jump into. I don't really love hiking and camping where there's like no shower. I just love water. But my perfect adventure involves water and a white sand beach that's desolate. And like, we don't totally know what's in the water below us. So there's some element of fear, but it's absolutely beautiful. And the waves are slightly intimidating, but fun and playful. That is my ideal adventure. That is your adventure. What about from an interview point of view? What's the best, fun, coolest adventures to talk about to you? Uh, what, are you what are you excited about? I just about? love anybody who's pushing themselves to their limits and having extreme joy. So. I interviewed some 85-year-old women who boogie board and started the largest boogie board club for basically grandmas. And they boogie board three times a week and they are so stoked and they share joy and camaraderie. And the perfect interviews also involve a sense of humor. So anybody who can laugh at themselves and tell me jokes along the way, like I had a guest who, you know, she was hiking in the in the in Antarctica and she was trying to ski across it. Her and her husband came the fastest to do so. And during that time, she was undergoing menopause. She used a diva cup. It got stuck. I think those stories are really funny. They're terrible, but (laughs) I love stories of when stuff goes wrong. Absolutely wrong. I find those stories amazing. And then people who are completely inspiring. You know, one of the best interviews I've ever had was with women, a woman who was 91 years old, a Holocaust survivor, Edith Eager. And she probably is hands down the best interview I've ever had. I also like people pushing themselves at the top of their game. Alex Honnold, Patty Gonia, the first outdoor drag queen, Bethany Hamilton. Those people have always been fascinating, but I don't know. It's, it's hard to pick like a favorite adventure podcast that I've had because everybody's yeah, not a damn oh, just like an ideal like style. style. Okay. Yeah, like, I wanna, like, like big journeys, small journeys, when, community. When, yeah. When, stuff when like that. hit the fan, but you know, they're still going out to do it anyway, but it's really funny. You know, I feel like I'm really big on humor. I have another podcast called Vitamin Joy, which is about mental health and humor. You know, Wild Ideas, I think, is about mental health and adventure. I've always been interested in the intersection of mental health, humor, and adventure. So trying to combine this all. Mm -hmm. But humor, I think humor is an absolute game changer. I think it's like the one tool in our toolkit that we often forget to bring in the wild, but that we need the most. So uh, if someone has a sense of humor, that is like the best interview ever. 
maybe this will be off script, but yeah, I, I, I feel like I come across way more professional than I actually am in person. I can I'm tell like, you're just a total jackass. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> I got told that recently. Um, no, it's, uh, I'm just like a total goofball. How, how close is your personality to your, your hosting? Cause I feel like mine, I don't know. I don't mean to, you're just like, I don't know. You just kind of put it, it on. It used to be a little closer. Um, sometimes REI scripts me into being pretty professional, but they know my sense of humor. They they are not afraid to add in a wiener joke for me. Know, know that I'll giggle. I just think they're so funny. Like, I just find 13-year-old boy humor really hilarious, and I'm totally okay with it. Maybe I'll ask you one more thing, because this is you, you mentioned this so many times. What is being the only woman in the room or only woman on the board or or, or – kind of being isolated in that, that sense. What have you noticed about like equality from a gender point of view in adventure sports since, since you started as a kid, has it gotten better? Yeah. I mean, I'm really lucky. I've been, I was kind of a product of title nine. I think a lot of opportunities actually opened up for me because I was a woman and I was really lucky to be part of a group of women at surf diva that were so encouraging and supportive of other women that, you know, if, other women are ever not encouraging of us. I'm always like very surprised and I try to like change them. I'm like, no, 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 we're like a team. You know, if I see another woman in the water, I'm cheering them on. And if a girl is vibing me, I'm like, what? And I'm just going to break her down until she's like nice to me. Um, I don't know. I think it's really expanded. You know, I think women have a lot of opportunities now in action sports and outdoor sports and they are getting out there more. I think the craziest thing is I just went to a woman's professional soccer game and I was just blown away. Like if that had been an opportunity for me when I was in college to make money as an elite soccer player, I don't think I ever would have found adventure. Right. I would have just been a professional soccer player. It's, it's really cool. I think people are excited about women surfing. Um, women surfers are getting paid equal to the men in terms of competition. I think things are changing. This next generation of young female surfers, at least in my community in San Diego are crushing it. So I am seeing more opportunity and it is really cool. And I'm starting to see more opportunity for all sorts of diversity opening up. That was never there when I was a kid. Mm. Um, it might happen slowly, but I'm definitely seeing it happen. You know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing the lineup in the water look a lot different than it did as a kid. It's more colorful. There's more women. And I don't know, it's exciting to see it because Diversity is what makes the United States and what makes it's what makes the world more interesting. And I think we need it. And we all know that adventure brings us joy. So everyone should have access to adventure, to the outdoors and in nature. Oh, well said. If you could point someone to find the book, is there is there a specific place you'd like people to go pick up Will to Wild? Well, you can get Will to Wild at REI.com at amazon.com at indie bookstore pretty much goodreads anywhere books are sold you can get will to wild i even have a website will to wild.com that lists all those places that you can get the book i actually don't really care where you get the book i mean it'd be cool if you supported rei but definitely listen to wild ideas worth living there yeah. um but yeah get the book anywhere i also recorded an audiobook and it's my voice so you will hear me awkwardly saying a few lines that the audio producer made me say over and over and over again and i'm probably giggling throughout oh god I can but imagine. i actually think the audiobook's the most fun so if you like podcasts just get the audiobook it's cheaper it's fun to listen to and you can definitely get that on audible Sweet. probably at amazon number yeah. one new release in solo travel guys as well oh it is that's, that's exciting that's what i saw so, All right. Well, yeah. we're also we're also number one in caving and spelunking. I was like, oh, that's good because there's like no caving stories in there. I was there. gonna say, yeah, not um, a, probably not a ton of. Uh, if anybody says they're number one on Amazon, it's probably like an obscure, um, obscure little thing. But yeah, it's cool. It's been really great to have people reach out and say that the book affected them. It's been really fun to meet people at in-person events. I'll be doing a few more this summer. And Mason, maybe you want to do like a live event together somewhere. Oh, absolutely. Adventure. We oh, should do it. Jeez. All right. Well, uh, Shelby, there's like a billion things I want to ask, but okay, well, I, I can't go. get my thoughts together. So, Love you long time. All right. Best. Thanks so much. Okay, we'll talk soon. Bye, Mason. All right. See you. Bye. First of all, 
Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.